Welcome to Three at the Back, the podcast from OptiPro. I'm Ryan Byer, I'll be your host for today's episode, in which we're going to talk a bit about the January transfer window, how teams are likely to approach this, and we'll also be looking back at some previous January transfers, looking into a little more detail on how these players perform both pre-transfer and post-transfer. I'm joined today by Sam Gregory, OptiPro data scientist, and Ben McCrill, head of OptiPro. You alright Sam? Yeah, good. Excellent. Ben, you well? Yeah, it's very good, guys. How are we doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. So we'll get straight into it. And um, Ben, I'll come to you first, given your experience on the club side of things. Could you could you start by telling us a bit about the recruitment cycle at your previous clubs? Has each club operated differently in regards to transfer windows? Is there or are there recurring themes that uh, that each club have adopted that you've been at? Yeah, I mean, I think the general cycles are obviously based around the two windows, um, and I think they both work very differently. So, you know, in this case, preparing for a January transfer window, you'll have done a lot of work over the previous probably six, seven months in preparing for that summer window. Um, And once the the window passes, you're obviously, what, a a month or so into the season by that point. So you've kind of got this month period uh, at the start of August uh, to the end of August where you're doing work on... Um, on players for the end of that window, uh, for that summer window. But primarily, you're starting to shift your focus more long-term for for the next January window. You're obviously spending a lot of time doing um, different uh, requests from coaching staff, from scouts, from directors of football on players that could impact the team in that August um, and for that first period of the season. Um, but you do start to look a bit more longer term as to what you can do between September and December uh, for the January window. Um, the biggest challenge and the biggest difference, I guess, between the January window and the summer window is the fact that in the summer, you you know where you are. You know what league you're in. You're, all, you're kind of starting from scratch at the start of the season. Um, you know... What the budget is, you know what players you have, what sort of situation you're in uh, and what you're pushing for, what your goals are for that season, whether that's fighting uh, fighting for promotion, whether it's fighting for a title or a relegation battle, you, you kind of know where you're at. The difficulty with January is that you have three, four months of work, scouting work to do to prepare for January, but you're constantly having to change your planning potentially you're you're potentially looking at different types of players different budgets uh, depending on your league position uh, and the results and at times as we all know a change in manager can happen as well Um, so there are so many more challenges I think around January as well as the fact that you get a month to sign a player I think that the biggest challenges are that there is so many things that can change so much context can change during those three or four month periods leading up to a January window that have an immediate impact on on who you sign and how you go about signing players in that window. And from your perspective you've been at clubs that have been chasing promotion and both uh, potentially fighting relegation how has that influenced your experiences in preparing for that January window and how you've gone about it? I actually think sort of the championship situation whether that's uh, fighting for promotion or whether that's as a Premier League club who could potentially get relegated there's so much that is predicated around the finances so if you're a Premier League club 
and you're in a relegation battle, then you know that even if you get relegated, you're going to have uh, parachute payments for three or four years after relegation. You'll have got TV money from that year. So it's probably slightly easier to take the risk of spending money on players, as we've seen with clubs like Sunderland, who've spent money in their in their kind of fight against relegation because they know they've got the parachute payments potentially if, if the worst happens and they've got the secured TV money from that year. So so financially, it's it's a probably an easier risk to take, I would say. Whereas for championship clubs fighting for a promotion, it's really difficult. Uh, I know that the clubs I've been at, this was a real challenge because if you're not in the top six and in a relatively secure position in that top six by December, then it's really tough to, to make that gamble and say, we're going to spend a lot of money on players to get us over the line because if it fails, we don't have the TV money, we don't have the um, the parachute payments. So if you don't get promoted, if you're not one of those three clubs, um, then you could be in a real sticky situation with wages, high wages for players that you've that you've had to bring in, um, maybe big transfer fees that you can't recoup. I think we talked about this in a previous podcast, but. One of the things that we always looked at was we would never sign a player if we didn't believe we could sell him for at least that value. Or if it was an older player, we knew that the risk was was okay because he was only going to be on the books for a year. Or Whereas if you take a big gamble, give someone a three or four year contract and you don't get promoted in that first year, you could be stuck with a lot of uh, wages that you you can't continue to pay on in the championship. So... I think for championship clubs, it's it's a real difficult uh, thing to balance. And you've worked with a lot of different managers as well. So um, how have they how have they varied in their approach to the January window? Have have some been against it? Have some been always looking to uh, to invest in the squad? How has that been for you? I think again, for every manager, it's dependent on um, the context that you're in at that point in January. You know, if you're if you are fighting for promotion, you are in a good spot. You do need something to tip you over the edge. Then that's something that managers I've been around have wanted to push forward for. But actually, on the whole, I'd say the majority of managers I've worked for have always looked for consistency in their selection and sort of consolidating the squad that they have. You know, people like Sean Dyche, very committed to his squad, um, and we made significant changes in summer windows, but didn't really do a great deal in January because... Sean always wanted to keep a very small squad and I think the success that you've seen Burnley have so far this season in the Premier League is again down to that core group of players that have been there and done it for the last couple of seasons, have been there in a promotion before with Burnley and been in the Premier League and they've this year, I think this summer, they brought in a bit more quality for the Premier League which is, is obviously you know having a big impact so far this year in in their performances. So I think... On the whole, the managers I worked for wanted to keep that consolidation of, of a squad, that core group, in January. Now, that's not to say that we didn't make attempts at clubs that I've been at. But I'm sure, as we'll discuss, you know, it's it's the hardest month of the year to sign a player. The players that you sign in January will probably be double the the kind of cost in transfer fees and, and often in wages because there's that kind of not desperation is a strong word but you know you know what I mean in terms of the difficulty of signing players in that window and often clubs who are selling uh, and agents who are involved will put 
a much higher price on their on their players. So it's it's yeah, it's a lot more difficult in January. Do you think that when you're signing players in January, you have to be a little safer? I mean, we've seen you mentioned Sunderland, and we saw when they signed Jermaine Defoe, he came from MLS, but they're signing an established Premier League player. Same happened with Newcastle last summer or last January, and they're fighting relegation. They signed Shelby and Townsend to established Premier League players. Is there? Do you want to take on a little less risk in a January transfer than you would in the summer? Yeah, I think the risk is probably around, uh, as you pointed out there, I think it's around the experience of the players. Um, so one of the things that we always discussed with managers was that they were they were happier to bring in players who hadn't played in England in the summer than they were to bring those players in in January. Um, and that's because you don't have time to adapt to the league. You don't have time to adapt personally necessarily you know in the summer you can come in in may june time and you can get your family sorted in the area you can settle down you can you know get to know your teammates on pre-season tours those kind of things and you can start to pick up the speed of training and that kind of thing whereas particularly for a championship side who are playing three games a week the amount of actual tactical training that you do is actually relatively limited because most of it's just preparation for the next game recovery preparation for the next game so for a player coming from abroad to come and play in the league for the first time whether that's the championship or the premier league you don't have time to adapt um, so i think the examples you mentioned you know shelby uh, townsend jermaine defoe all players who played probably over 100 games each more than 100 games in, in some cases each in those leagues they didn't have to adapt um, so yeah I think that's that's definitely something that is is taken into account and again you know one of the big discussions we've been having is is around this one of the hottest topics within football clubs around data is how do you assess players moving from one league to another and how because we need to have some way of assessing how quickly they can adjust and um, whether the qualities of certain leagues uh, will, um, I guess, map more easily to coming to the Premier League and the Championship. And and that example is is exactly why. Um, because if you do have to take the risk of bringing a player in in January, then are they going to adapt quickly enough? And that's often because of the experiences they've had previously. You, um, you touched on, on the use of data there, and obviously no one of its key benefits is around... A player's historical performance, we can go back, you know, six months, a year, two years, five years, even ten years for certain players. And with you and your and clubs often breaking recruitment down into cycles, how has a player's previous performance, historical performance, how has that married up with um, with a club's planning and over in what is essentially a six-month cycle? Yeah, I'd say that the six-month cycles are around um, player availability, I'd guess, I'd say. Um, and the sort of the assessments that you can do on those players on current performances over that three, four month period at the start of a season between September and December. But I guess the the, the more historical approach is that any player you're watching, you may have to, you may miss out on them on numerous windows. You may not have the opportunity to see them for periods of time if they're players that are playing abroad, if they're injured for any kind of period. So you do have to look long term both from a scouting perspective but also from a, a, a data perspective and as you said you know data is something we can look at players for a much longer period of time um, and 
allows us, particularly with European players, to track players over over their careers and look at their progression, look at their potential drop-off in performance at any point when we can only really go and see them play between five and ten times, I would have thought, in that kind of six-month period. And will you have, obviously, you'll have your own your own targets of KPIs of what you require both from um, from existing playing staff and, and potential playing staff. And will you be checking players to make sure that they're... Um, they're on track to hit those potential targets. Will they be looking? Will you be looking at players, thinking they're on the right path? Maybe in the next window, two windows time, they could be something we consider a bit more seriously. Yeah, definitely. I think long-term planning like that is is always something that's nice to have and nice to do. As we know, the turnover in staff and turnover in situations with football clubs often doesn't allow you to do that. And you know, the longest, unfortunately, the longest I spent at a club doing recruitment was two years, and so that's only four windows so that's that can be a challenge but yeah I mean we we would check or we did our European data scouting um, about every 10 games we did a new list of players uh, looking at performances at that point up to the season whether names had changed whether there were names that were coming up in our data scouting that we hadn't seen before uh, and that we needed to go and see live but then obviously you get to a point around sort of mid-November towards the end of November where you need to have a target list. You need to be going and seeing your top two or three players in that position as many times as you can. You need to get your manager to go out and see them play. In reality, you're looking at sort of September to mid-November, by which point you need to be pretty set on who you're trying to sign so that you can start that process and that long process of trying to sign a player. Good stuff. And uh, within this topic, the last thing I want to I want to bring up is uh, is the uh, transfer deadline day, which uh, I think is everybody's least favourite day, but something that's always going to be probably the busiest day for you and that side of things. Could you talk us through that and how um, how that's worked from your side being uh, being inside a club? Yeah, deadline day is a funny a funny phenomena. I think. I mean, we know that in the UK that clubs and leagues outside of the Premier League have a little uh, laugh at England and the way the Premier League does things on January deadline day with the uh, yellow ties and the um, Sky Sports News day of uh, watching the clock because no one else does it. And and that's the, the kind of funny thing that about the Premier League. It's been the way it's been commercialised. It's, it's the way that particularly Sky have, have created this phenomenon. For, for clubs and for people in clubs, I tell you, one of the best decisions they made was moving the end of the deadline to was it now six o'clock rather than it being eleven o'clock at night? Because I had a lot of very very late days. Because although the window closes at eleven, you often don't finish things until one two a.m. in the morning if you've been right up against the deadline. I guess the thing with January is that the biggest question people ask is always why is it left to the last minute? Why does it always appear like you haven't done anything about it until the last day of the window? I know that that's how it appears, but it's not really accurate. As I said before, you need to have your target set by mid-November, um, end of November, to really start attacking those players and going and trying to um, make contact with the club, make contact with the agents, uh, and start to come up with a process of how you're going to sign this player. And so often these things start way, way before the 1st of January. But as you said, there's so many things that can change during that that period you know league position can affect the finances so it can change what players you can sign but also it can have a significant impact on the other club 
for the play that you're trying to sign the player from. So they're also trying to do their own business. And so the biggest problem that happens in, in clubs trying to sign players is that you're often waiting for the other club to sign a replacement for that player before you before they will let you sign them. Um, I had this on numerous occasions during January windows and it was the worst time of year for, for this happening where you've done all the work on a player, you make contact with the club and they say potentially that they're interested in selling that player to you but they need to make that signing for uh, to replace that player even if they're a squad player, even if they're, it's, you're signing a you're a championship club and you're signing a player who's been a squad player in the champion in the Premier League. They still need to keep the numbers. You know, they they still need to have their their squad numbers in case of injuries. Potentially, they're trying to sign a player, a better player in that position anyway. But you have to wait until that's happened. And so for weeks and weeks during January, you, you're waiting for that other club to sign that player so that they can release that player. And that's one of the major reasons why it takes until deadline day. I mean, one thing I'd say is that I don't think I've ever been in a situation where we haven't made contact with a player or a club until the until deadline day. It's always been done days, if not weeks before. It can just take until that last day for things to happen. And the other thing is if you're a selling club, you want to put that club under as much pressure as possible because they want to sign that player. They're obviously really interested in them. And the way for you to get the most value is to really wait it out until the end of that until the end of the window to get the most value because as soon as that deadline passes then you obviously can't do anything until the end of the end of the season one of the one of the interesting things actually to mention is the changes in the rules this summer um, around loan players so previously particularly for well for, for clubs outside of the Premier League you could still sign loan players between uh, the windows now that's stopped as well now I think this January is probably going to be even busier for championship clubs than it has ever has been in the past because you you have to if you've got a lot of injuries in January you've got maybe some long-term injuries in the club that you can't replace them but with loan players during the season then I think championship clubs particularly what those fighting for promotion will be signing more players in January either as loans or as permanent signings because they can't do anything between January and the end of the season so within the the January deadline uh, a player can often come up at short notice. How would um, how would you go about that? What would that look like from your uh, from your side of things? Yeah, I mean, it's as we mentioned before. You know, players will come up for different reasons at different times. Um, whether that's a, a club assigned a player, which means they're no longer needed, and you get notified about this all the way through January by agents, by contacts at different clubs. To say this player is now available, we know you're interested. You were interested in the past, maybe, or you might be interested in that player. Um, so, yeah, I mean, although that doesn't tend to happen right at the end of the window, because by that point you need to be going through a process of signing them. It can happen in the first few weeks, and you do need to react. So, the process we always went through was always starts start with the data, because that would be the same process we would go through on a longer term scouting strategy of checking whether that player's uh, statistical profile matched what we were looking for uh, in our KPIs for the team's philosophy, the manager's philosophy, and looking for how they matched up against other targets that we'd been looking for over a longer period of time, and whether they were on a hot streak in terms of their, their form over the last three or four months. And then we'd match that up with the scout reports because particularly if they're a, a domestic player, you are really looking for players 
who can come in in January and hit the ground running. Uh, and you will have tracked those players in the Championship, in the Premier League, League One, League Two, um, over those three or four months, if not a lot longer in domestic uh, football. So you're matching the, the statistical profile against the scouting reports, and you have to do that immediately. And then you can then look to present that to the manager and the coaching staff as to whether that's a player that uh, they feel would have an impact on the squad. And often, particularly domestically, with domestic transfers, you're also then tapping into the knowledge of uh, the coaching staff as to how they feel about that player because they'll have a much better knowledge having faced that player in more recent times, maybe in recent games if they're in the same league, um, as to how they feel about that player and whether that player could have an impact um, but I do think data and a combination of data and video have an enormous impact in that very short space of time where you need to make a decision on a player because the capability that we have now to look over that longer term career immediately to match that up against your benchmarks and your KPIs statistically, but then also to pull together a video playlist of that player's strengths and weaknesses very, very quickly and review that with the coaching staff is one of the skills that we have now as analysts and as scouts that, that years gone by they wouldn't have been able to have and then maybe wouldn't have been able to make those transfers so quickly, uh, make those decisions so quickly. I was, I was going to ask about that because if a player does become available so late in the day, that obviously reduces the opportunities to see that player live. Does that mean data then becomes takes more prominence and more emphasis is placed on that data? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so, definitely. I mean, I've been in situations in the past where it's it's just not possible to go and see that player in time before the, the window closes. You know, if it's it's generally it is a domestic player that we're talking about in these situations because if it's a European player, it's more likely the manager needs to go and see that player live. And often that's, you know, almost impossible in January, particularly with things like winter breaks where you know, in some leagues, you you physically can't go and watch the players play because they're because they're not playing. Um, so this tends to happen more for domestic transfers, and in that case, the coaching staff, the scouts have all all likely seen that player live at least three or four times, if not more than that, um, in that period between September and and December. So you can you can kind of pull together that knowledge. But the data plays an enormous part in looking at a player's career, looking at more minutely the games and their form in recent times. Um, I've been in situations where we've been sat around the room discussing a player with a manager who we were looking to sign in January and we couldn't get to see that player again. But we had a good, good amount of scout reports and they were very mixed. And one of the things that came up was how creative that player was. And the general feeling in the room was that they'd been off form this season. They were playing for a team that was struggling a little bit in the league. And so there was this kind of general perception that this player hadn't been performing. And that was really based around him playing in a poor team and, and the games that the, the scouts had seen them play and they hadn't been very good. And, and so he hadn't been a big part of the team's performances. But we actually we looked at his data profile. And it showed a completely different picture that his, despite the lack of opportunities the team were creating, he was creating such a high percentage of them himself that although the balance of the team showed that he wasn't performing, he certainly was individually and he was having an enormous impact on whatever the team did create and the opportunities they both had to score and the ones he was creating for them to score. So 
that in the room completely changed the perception. And then we looked at the video and looked at every opportunity the team had created, the ones he'd been involved in, either directly or, or indirectly in the moves. And immediately the perception of that player changed because it kind of changed that historical feeling that he'd been playing in an underperforming team and maybe he'd been a part of that. But actually, it was it was almost the opposite. And so that led us to, to actually push quite hard. And unfortunately, the, the transfer didn't come off. But... Um, for other reasons but the data played an enormous impact in us changing our philosophy as to whether we would go and try and sign that player. So can you take us through step by step how you would go from identifying a player before the January window into January how that player eventually joins your team? So the kind of that six month process that we talked about before uh, in terms of going in six month cycles the cycle starts um, as I said, probably in August, actually, even even though you've still got time to make a transfer in August. Um, so end of August, beginning of September, we would domestically watch every team in, in the country uh, at least two or three times. And we'd have scouts write very small, brief, th- two or three lines on every player in those teams that was of you know s- some relevance. So in within two or three weeks, we've seen every club from the Premier League down to League Two and we've got some idea of the players that we need to go and follow up on again and write more detailed reports on and go and track um, with sort of scouts watching singular players and, and writing those um, longer reports, more detailed reports. And then that was then combined with the, the data approach. So from the first probably 10 games of the season normally, we do our first round of, of data scouting for every competition uh, in Europe that we were interested in and we'd use our KPIs um, from the manager's philosophy to build a profile of the types of players in every position and then map that across um, each competition and find the players that, that kind of came into those categories um, and then we would start a European scouting based on those lists. So that starts in September, you then get to a period between sort of end of September and the middle of November where you're bringing that list down. So you're both a combination of your data list, which you update every 10 games or so, and then your scouting list, which has gone from huge pool of players and it's constantly being cut down. More and more lists are being created based on data, a combination of data and scouting until you get to around mid-November. And at that point, you need to get your coaching staff involved, your manager, your assistant manager director of football potentially as well involved in the process so at that point you've identified the two or three players in the positions that you're looking for in January and you're taking your manager coaching staff to go and see them a couple of times before um, before January hits and that's a crucial point of the process is getting them on board making sure they're comfortable with everything you've presented them so you'll have already done a video profile by that point you'll have done a data profile matched that against the squad and presented that to the manager and also presented all of the scouting reports and got the key people in the room to discuss how they feel about that player. But a manager won't sign a player until he's comfortable and is happy that they're the type of player that would fit in the team. And often the manager will also make calls to managers that have managed him in the past, potentially, um, other contacts that they have in the game to check on things like personality, um, check up on anything that may have come up in the media about that player to just clarify anything that that might be a little bit off. 
And so then by the time you get to January, you have a process of knowing everything about that player, complete due diligence, statistically, scan reports, personal, and got the manager on board. And by that point, you can hopefully um, make a decision and go after those players. Perfect. We're going to take a break just now, but we'll be back shortly to discuss a uh, few players that have moved in the January window and how they've got on. Welcome back to Three at the Back. In this section, we're going to look at some players that have moved in January, um, find out what they were doing before their move, after their move, and uh, a little bit of additional discussion on those players. So, um, first player we're going to look at, Sam, is Gary Cahill. Yeah, so Gary Cahill was one who he moved from Bolton to Chelsea in the uh, summer or in the January of 2012. And he was already an established Premier League player at this time. Everyone sort of knew what he was bringing to the table. And Chelsea were looking for a partner for John Terry at the time. And it, it's interesting because when you look at his numbers, he was a typical Premier League centre-back. He was averaging around four aerials, one per 90 minutes, uh, 1.3 tackles per 90 minutes, 1.8 interceptions. And then the season before he left, or the half season he had at Bolton, he was averaging a little over two interceptions per 90 minutes. So pretty typical KPIs for a Premier League centre-back. But he was a really well-known quantity, and I think that sort of helped make his transition. He was playing in the same league. And at Chelsea, obviously, his numbers dipped a little bit just because he was defending less on a team that had much more of the ball. But he was a player who fit in really well, who I assume had been scouted well, who they understood what he exactly what he brought to the team. And, I mean, since he's moved there, they've won a Premier League and a Champions League title. So he's quite a good example, I think, of someone who was a known quantity when he moved, who was well-known across the league, but fit in really well at his new club. Yeah, I think with Gary Cahill as one, um because of the data going back to earlier in John Terry's career, um, for example, you could look at his KPIs against John's and see how um, how he's evolving as a defender and they could line it up that way as well. Yeah, I think that the thing Sam mentioned there around the consistency is something that is, is so much easier to look at within your own league. So if you can look at the data and assess a player's consistent performances over a number of seasons in the same competition, uh, that's a much easier process to go through than if you were looking at a player from another competition because you then don't understand necessarily the context around their performances, whereas you can provide that with scouting reports and being able to watch that player consistently over a period of time and match that up with data. And I think that's, you know, as Sam said, Gary Cahill's data is is very consistent over those two seasons for Bolton. Um, and, you know, the other key thing that Sam mentioned is is around a player's ability um, to adapt to a new system in that Cahill was, was not going to be defending as much, wasn't going to be having that much impact defensively uh, for Chelsea compared to how much you know, the volume of defending that he had to do at Bolton. So I always found that transfer really interesting because although Cahill was a relatively obvious target for Chelsea for a, a long period of time, Taking a player from a team that was at the lower end to come and have an impact in a in a team that's fighting for promotion, uh, fighting for a title, is quite an interesting thing to to do. Particularly as Cahill immediately did have that impact and immediately played a high number of minutes. And, and he did have a high number of minutes year after year at Bolton and at Chelsea. Again, he's played a lot of minutes. He had, I mean, he's had a bit of injury troubles, but nothing too too serious during his time at Chelsea. And he was only a seven million pound transfer as well. Which, when you think of the fact that he's already a proven Premier League player. It looks quite good looking back on Chelsea's business that's that January. Excellent. Next on our list is uh, another player involving Chelsea. It's Daniel Sturridge. 
Yeah, Daniel Sturridge was one that really jumped out to me because unlike Cahill, he hadn't played a lot of minutes for his club that season. I mean, he'd, he hadn't uh, finished two full games. He only played 160 minutes for Chelsea before moving to Liverpool in, the, uh, in January 2013. And obviously he'd played a lot for Chelsea the year before. He'd, had, he'd played a lot on loan at Bolton. And uh, he's a player who people were quite familiar with. But when he moved to Liverpool, his numbers made a huge jump. He was averaging not uh, 0.43 in his last full season with Chelsea. Uh, at goals per 90 in his last full season with Chelsea, not 0.5 goals per 90 in his very short uh, half season with Chelsea. Then his numbers jumped massively when he moved to Liverpool. He was averaging uh, not 0.82 goals per 90 in his first half season with Liverpool. And the next season was the, uh, the season where Liverpool almost won the title and he was averaging not 0.83 goals per 90 playing alongside Sterling and uh, Suarez. So I think it's interesting when you see a player who makes such a big jump in January, not only in terms of minutes played, but also just his output in general was he was clearly much better suited to the system and had much more playing time at Liverpool than he was given at Chelsea, which is an interesting one because often in January, as you're saying, it's a, you want to have someone who you're confident will be able to start playing that well right away. But with Sturridge, there was that risk because he'd played so little of the season up to that point when he moved. Yeah, and I guess it's players like that that, that where the scouting may play more, the live scouting may play more of a part than the the data because for a player who has so little minutes, so little of a sample to analyze, it's probably where you're taking a, a risk in terms of going off um, just their technical ability, what you believe that player has in the in the flashes that you've seen them play. And obviously you mentioned, you know, Sturridge had been on loan as well. So there would have been a lot of live scouting being done on Sturridge in his loan spells. I remember as well, you know, someone like Daniel Sturridge will have been tracked from a very young age by clubs like uh, Liverpool from their youth scouting as well. So they'll have a very deep knowledge of that player before they make a, a kind of transfer like that, even though it appears that he hasn't you know, played a lot of games uh, for Chelsea. They're still able to do that, uh, make those kind of risks. And also remember, you know, Liverpool, big club with, with significant uh, transfer uh, funds available. Um, so it's probably easier for them to take those types of risks than if that was a mid or lower tier, tier club. Um, I mean, one of the things that's interesting in the data is that Sturridge's shots per 90 in 2011 were around 3.6. And that actually stayed pretty consistent when he went to Liverpool in, for the 2013 season. He had that that same number of shots per 90. So it was almost like his his ability at Chelsea was seen in terms of the shots that he could create for himself or the shots that he was going to have. But the conversion rate in more opportunities, more chances, maybe better quality chances that he was getting at Liverpool by playing more games had an impact on his on his ability to um, to convert and have more success at Liverpool. Excellent. And looking at transfers that perhaps have been done from teams without the budgets of, uh, of Chelsea and Liverpool, we're going to look at uh, Michael Maddell. Yeah, so Model was one who moved this January on loan originally, and the move was made permanent this summer from Austria to Fulham. And Fulham at the time had one of the worst uh, defences in the championship. They had conceded, I think, the second or third most goals in the championship at the time, so we're looking for uh, some support at centre-back. And they brought in Model, who looks on paper, when you look at his numbers from Austria, he looks a lot like a championship centre-back. He's quite strong in the air, was averaging over five uh, aerials, one per 90 minutes in Austria, he was averaging over four interceptions per 90 minutes in Austria. And the other thing that really makes him look like a championship centre-back was the fact that he was so good at getting the ball into the final third. I mean, a lot of championship teams play quite directly and want to move the ball forward quickly, and he averaged uh, seven over seven final third passes per 90, 
which is quite high for a center back. And again, when he moved to Fulham, these numbers were pretty much were quite similar, averaging over six final third passes per ninety minutes or final third entries per ninety minutes. Uh, still quite good in the air. Still quite good, making a lot of interceptions, over three interceptions per 90 minutes in his first year at Fulham. So he's a guy who looked a lot like a championship center back, and I'm sure Data played some role in this transfer, just because when you look at his numbers in Austria, he looks like a player who will fit well into the Fulham system. And even when, and when he came to Fulham, he played over 1,000 minutes in that half season, which is and was quite a big part of Fulham's uh, second half of the season, which was much stronger, where they... Were, uh, they were struggling, fighting against relegation in the first half of the season, and were quite safe by the end. Yeah, again, I think you make a really, you know, really good point around the data for looking at the types of KPIs that are important for the championship. You know, there is this perception, and probably quite rightly, that you need defenders who can head it and kick it, uh, which is the the phrase that's quite uh, readily used in. You know, for defenders in the championship. And I think what's interesting here is we were talking right at the start around the challenges of moving a player from one league to another in January and them needing to adapt. And it's those types of KPIs from the data that you can look at and say, well, even if those numbers dropped, which they do in, in all of those cases, they drop when he came to Fulham. But because they were so high to start with, you knew that the volume, even if it did drop in the championship, it probably wasn't going to drop significantly so that it was going to underperform uh, in the league so even if the number of attempts the number of defensive actions was going to drop when he came to the championship from Austria then it was still going to be high enough to be, to be a player that could really have an impact for Fulham uh, in the championship and and that's what we saw Excellent and finally on our list is uh, Gianelli Imbula Imbula was a, one of the big transfers of this past January just because he was such a big money transfer near the deadline day it was an 18 million pound transfer that sort of turned a lot of heads and when you look at where he came from and when he came from Porto, his numbers were very high. But again, there's reasonable doubts about how he's going to transfer to the Premier League. But his numbers in the half season he played at Stoke were almost identical to the numbers of his half season in Portugal before. He was averaging uh, over 13 final third passes per 90, over seven passes that enter the final, ent or final third entries per 90 minutes, and um, making a lot of key passes as well. He was averaging 1.5 key passes per, per 90 at uh, Porto, and about 0.8 key passes per 90 at Stoke, which is a bit of a drop-off, but still good for a center midfielder. So he's a guy who, I mean, there are a lot of question marks coming over just because of the big price tag, but he performed at almost the exact same levels at Stoke as he was in Portugal or the half season before. And I'd say that, again, someone like Mbula is likely to be the type of player that Stoke will have done significant amount of scouting on uh, over a period, a long period of time. <clears throat> Half a season's worth of data is probably not enough to make a transfer on. Um, so they will have looked at him over a, a longer period of time and looked at his effect uh, on the system that Mark Hughes has now created at Stoke. And I think he was certainly one of the players that kind of balanced off uh, the more creative flair players that Stoke have brought in over the last uh, year or so in Bojan and Afalai and Altovic. Mbulu is more of a rounded midfield player who could balance that off. And I think, again, they'll have been very sure in checking how he would perform in the Sto in the new Stoke system. Uh, and, and I think from, from what I can remember, uh, it certainly matches quite well with, with the Porto team that we've seen over the last year or so. Uh, in, a, in a very similar system so they were identifying a player to 
to fit a specific role in a, a specific position. And again, that's something that these KPIs really show uh, when you match those up with the Stoke players that, that have been playing in those positions previously. And I think that reflects the sort of change in roles that a team like Stoke have gone through uh, over the last year to 18 months. Thank you very much, guys. I think all uh, all four players there are quite a nice range of, uh, of some of the processes and thoughts behind different different levels of January transfer, both at high end of the budget and those... Uh, those perhaps with, uh, with less money to spend. That's all we have time for today. So uh, we're going to wrap things up there. Thank you very much, Ben. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much, Sam. Thanks. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening.